Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. Across the series, we explore the emerging trends and tech and meet key speakers, futurists and business leaders from across the globe. In this episode, ASM Technologies Ian Tomkinson talks through the world of defense and intelligence sectors with guests Jeff Nichols, MBE and Nick Melgard. Jeff is a former platoon commander and officer with the British Army, and following a position with NATO, now works for tech company Primer, with a specialised interest in cyber and defence. Jeff helps support government and organisations to realise and adopt the power of artificial intelligence. Nick is also a former infantry officer in the British Army, specialising in information operation and intelligence. Nick holds degrees in philosophy and international relations, and has worked for Primus since they launched in the UK, developing commercial strategies and helping government departments integrate AI for positive change. In this episode, we'll hear about the latest tech capabilities of the military, how AI and better tech can help bring peace, how tech companies are working with military forces around the world, and how the defense industry of tomorrow could look. All of that to come on ASM Connected. Hi, everybody, and welcome to ASM Connected. We've got some exciting guests for you today. Very different subject than we've covered off before. But first, let me introduce you to Jeff to start off with. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Ian. How are you today? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good. Also have Nick with me. Morning, Nick. Morning, Ian. So, gents, a lot of experience on both the military and AI and natural language technology, which is going to be great. So just to set us off, we'll start with a question that is hopefully a, a shortish answer, but one that I'm quite keen to understand. And we've, over the years, worked with a lot of cyber companies, security companies that have come out of Israel. It seems to be the hotbed of technology, particularly in cyber. And I suppose it's well documented that the military in Israel is fantastic at developing cyber technologies and applications. Question to you, chaps, is, is the British military on par with the Israelis, or is it being more conservative about its abilities, which is a traditionally British thing to be? How do we compare, and is it even possible to do so? I think um, I think I'll take that for us if that's all right, Ian. Yeah, great. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. It's one of my definitely one of my favourite areas to debate around. You know, what is cyber and what are the subsets of it, and what do we actually mean by it? Um, it's a really fascinating space I've been working in since about 2016 with the military. And I reckon it wasn't that long ago that the UK or you know the United Kingdom didn't really acknowledge that it had an offensive cyber capability. It's only in the in the recent sort of five or six years that it acknowledged that this sort of capability even exists. And I think cyber technologies is really hard to compare because it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg. You don't really know what's below it. And um, and as you said rightly, so like very conservative approach, I feel, particularly UK government and British Army plays in that space. Um, so I think it would be hard to compare directly, you know, who's got the better one. Naturally, I'd always say, you know, United Kingdom, being an ex-British army officer. But I think it's, it's almost like trying to compare sort of, you know, apples and pears when it comes to it. And one thing I'd like to probably explore in this would be, perhaps it's like, is defense in this instance, like the British military, is it sort of keeping up, you know, with emerging technologies, which allows it to be comparable to things like Israel in this instance? And I think, Historically, defense has been quite bad at keeping up to speed with technology, particularly the last sort of like two decades, where we suddenly see a change in that now. And I think we can leverage as the United Kingdom things like our relationships with either Five Eyes community, so USA, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, which is quite a unique relationship that specializes on things like cyber capabilities, 
as well as leveraging things like, um, you know, NATO allies or uh, agencies as well that can support us going forward. So if I personally don't think defense has kept up in the, in the past in the commercial sectors with tech innovation, you know, defense doesn't really own the monopoly anymore on innovation. And it's almost like there's been an inverse in recent history where um, defense is now behind the commercial sector. So we have to provide integrators and spaces where we as defense, you know, they can connect with commercial sectors and allow contractors or government suppliers to perhaps develop bespoke solutions for very unique requirements for defense. So for example, you know, Incutel being a sort of a VC backed venture supports national security aspects in the United States, something that we're connected to thereafter getting the best bits of technology and connect it along. Or for example, NATO's uh, introduced this year, a thing called Diana, which is the defense innovation uh, accelerator for the North Atlantic. And the UK, again, May this year um, has developed the Defence Battle Lab. And the purpose of these organisations is to be that interface, the sort of the we work culture or the, the innovation space and, and leveraging commercial sectors to bring to defence the latest bits of tech. And I'm sure we'll unpack, you know, cyber and, and AI a little bit later, but I think it really does apply to things where the military has been behind in, particularly around, you know, the law of diffusion of innovation, where I find the military has been quite a late adopter in particular technologies. And, you know, I see our role as commercial sectors to try and get defense, particularly British military and the UK government towards being like an early adopter of certain technologies as we go forward. So just to, uh, I suppose, expand on that, there's quite a, a firm line between the government defense. It's all highly secure and secretive in a commercial organization, which is, um, behaves in a very different way. How receptive these days is the defence sector to commercial organisations knocking on the door and saying, hey, I've got this great piece of tech, you know, how can we work together? How does that work these days? Is there a positive reception to that? Yeah, I think so. And experience with uh, Primer at the minute is we've had some really positive connections with the government and they're very open. I think you're right to highlight things like, you know, the security classifications, et cetera, and information that commercial companies just aren't going to be privy to. But there's kind of this relationship that you can form where it's mutually beneficial. You know, we'll have access to new bits of perhaps data that we've never seen before or unique problem sets that we hadn't thought about. And therefore we can apply solutions and it becomes this reciprocal relationship as we go through to it. But they do have these, you know, these sort of nodes, I'm going to call them, where they open their doors, defense opens the doors to commercial clients, and they want us to come in and engage with them and speak to them and explain, you know, technologies and solutions. And I was saying like, the, you know, the funniest thing is if you ask someone in the British military, and I classify myself in that, if you asked me 10 years ago, what do you think was a really good online collaboration tool? The answer would be, you know, Microsoft Teams, because that's the only answer we ever knew. And it takes time to unpack and explore and, and talk to different organizations to actually find, well, actually, there's a plethora of solutions you could use. And I think that's the thing that Defense Today is really open to, is exploring and going on a journey together. That's, uh, that, that's reassuring, that is. And particularly, you know, as you, as you say, sort of probably five, ten years ago, I think that sort of approach to emerging tech and innovation was probably similar to that in the enterprise space as well. It was, you know, well, we've got our Cisco, we've got Microsoft, what else do we need? I think the attitudes have changed. Well, if we want to stay ahead, not only in the enterprise space, but also in defense, and if we want to keep ahead of the competitors out there, be them commercial competition, or um, if they're uh, the bad guys, I think we need to stay ahead. And I think that's driving that sort of receptiveness towards technology. The follow point other than that would just be, I think they've had that big 
almost like paradigm shift effectively, where, you know, we spent a lot of time fighting in uh, particular regions of the world. You know, we were very, very concentrated on the physical battle, the physical domain or the land domain. And it's only in the last perhaps, you know, six, seven years where that switch has come back to cyber being a priority. And it's nice to see. Um, so uh, moving on to uh, some of the more sort of uh, in-depth questions, and uh, this is, a, I suppose, an opener. So uh, we're all aware that technology is disrupting all sectors and even our, our way of life. Uh, you know, every sort of sector and every sector we've covered in the podcast series, uh, everyone's saying, yeah, this is the impact. Obviously, defence is, is very different. You know, what impact is innovative and emerging tech having on the battlefield of, of today and the future? And you, you've obviously given us a, a little bit of a glimpse there that it's, it is it is having an impact and we've moved from, I suppose, boots on the ground, which is obviously still important. But how is it impacting defence for the future? Yeah, I'll come in with, a, I, I think, a couple of points, if that's all right. I mean, I think the point that, you know, technology is disrupting all sectors is quite well observed and primer is part of something that's going on in a lot of different respects throughout the the technology and machine learning world essentially what we're trying to do is you know engineer things from the from the other direction so what i mean by that is usually if you would have a very complicated process let's say teaching a robot to walk you would have to tell it to its right leg forward and then rotate its hip by 30 degrees. And you would have to come up with a very, very complicated set of instructions from the ground up. What machine learning is doing is basically saying, okay, what do I want to see? And labeling some examples of success, or the thing, you know, thing that I'm trying to pick out. And then letting a complicated, you know, neural network figure out, okay, well, what do all of those instances of success have in common? And then extract the rules from that and then reapply them. So in a way, it's kind of building from the other direction. And that's a huge change that Primer is part of in language technology, but also in, in computer vision and you know, many other areas of machine learning and data science. A couple of years ago, you know, there was this huge explosion uh, in machine learning models for language AI, which is you know, the, the area that we're in. But the impact it's having is, is several fold. You know, fundamentally, technology is about reducing the friction. You know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure Jeff, um, who, you know, attended staff college, I, I never did, but Jeff would have a lot more to say about, you know, the Carl von Clausewitz and talking about friction in the battlefield, you know, basically how many barriers are there to manifesting your intent? Can you remove, you know, like what's, what's the, the noise or the difficulties in, in doing the thing that you want to do? And so fundamentally technology is created to help us do the things that we want to do with fewer complications. Um, you know, be, be that physical technology or, or, um, software. What's, what's kind of ironic and very interesting, and I guess the subject for, for this discussion, is that it's reduced a lot of friction. And so now, you know, we can look up information on the internet very easily. We can pilot more or less aut autonomous weapons, you know, without having to have someone in the cockpit. We can, you know, shoot a little bit further. We can have um, smarter weapons. But with all of those technological advances that help us reduce friction, we're also creating problems or complications in other areas. The massive amount of information that we now have at our disposal, the fact that certain very, very effective smart weapons have pushed people off the battlefield, which has, has changed the shape of, of armed conflict. That's the kind of irony. So it's, it's had a huge positive impact, you know, generally emerging technology, but it's also created some very new complications that, uh, you know, companies like Primer uh, and uh, in partnership with the armed forces are, are trying to address. Yeah, that, that's a, a really interesting play on it. And, you know, particularly with uh, everything that's going on in the world at the moment, uh, particularly with the uh, Ukraine conflict, seeing that the uh, Russian forces have actually been 
pinpointing and, and getting data on the Ukrainian forces' mobile phones because they've left them switched on, and they're using that to pinpoint people. And that all generates data, be it movement data, you know, how many people are out there. So effectively, can AI help minimize civilian casualties, improve target recognition and reaction times? And I know there's lots of cases where the reaction times is quite critical. And I think that's one thing that I'm aware of that technology has improved significantly. But coming back to can it help minimize civilian casualties? Can it improve target recognition? Because there's been some terrible events over the years where what is defined sometimes by the military is collateral damage is high. Um, Do you think that we can use technology to improve that? I mean, yes, absolutely. And I'll pass over to Jeff, who'll have much better detail on some of the aspects of this. But like, yes, absolutely. And and like in many respects, that's the intention of, uh, you know, using technology in this area is is to to try and manifest some of the the, the rules and ideas and to try and minimize collateral damage. And I think the example that comes to mind is, is the, you know, is the, the Gulf War, uh, you know, that the Soviet Union was, uh, was, was disintegrating. And the, the West was trying to use new weapons and just sort of showcase um, the way the technology can be used in, in war. Um, and, and this trend has has increased, you know, and, and now we're looking at um, you know, the use of machine learning, uh, in particular computer vision. Um, a couple of technologies are really, really pioneering this. One American company, Athena Technologies, comes to mind, which is looking for particular patterns and looking for, you know, really, really interesting, sophisticated patterns about, you know, who's carrying what sorts of weapons. But then also for non-kinetic measures, you know, like information technology, absolutely as well. And operation centers, fire service, police, you know, in all areas, um, military and, and also just emergency services, the triaging and organization of information, especially unstructured written information is a huge step. Primat has a couple of products around this, um, in particular the release of Primat Command last year, but essentially this is about closing the OODA loop, which is, you know, a fancy way of saying that we're, we're trying to make decisions faster or faster than, than, you know, our adversaries. But I, I, I think there is, you know, a significant difference, you know, that the Gulf War was very significant. I think I'm quoting Max Brooks of the Modern War Institute saying that, you know, the, the Gulf War was in some ways the worst war that the West ever fought. Um, it was designed to deter aggression. You know, America will destroy enemies on the battlefield. But the message was, well, don't fight on the battlefield. And so in a way, very, very sophisticated weapons and technology has changed what war looks like. You know, now war involves many more civilians because the lines between civilian and combatant and battlefield um, have blurred. So the weapons are becoming much more sophisticated. It doesn't necessarily mean that sophistication is being used for good either. You know, weapons themselves and AI systems, they don't have intention. So it's important to figure out what we want to use these measures for. And whilst there's, you know, the ability to process a lot of information, there's also a lot more information out there. So I think the technology has had, you know, a double-edged sword to use the sort of weapon pun. And it changes things very significantly. I think it's very important still to, to be engaged in the discussion of the way we work with technology. And I, I think it's essential to not just let the technology take over. Um, you know, Primat operationalizes NLP. You know, that's a big part of what we do. We don't just create products of the research. But we also, you know, try to get it into difficult places and to work on significant problems. And we need to continually think about what we wanted to do. Jeff, what, what are your thoughts on, on this sort of thing? Yeah, thanks, Nick. I think, you, you know, Nick makes a really great point in there. And we'd be bad off ex-army officers, wouldn't we, if we didn't talk about class fits. And I think the interesting thing you've picked on there, Nick, is 
the nature of the war doesn't change, the character does. And Ian, you mentioned this about the complexities we're seeing today in Ukraine with aerial systems, targeting, etc. And I think, you know, the, the challenge or the, the benefits we're facing now with artificial intelligence in this is really the understanding of things like, you know, phase zero operations. So before the bang occurs in a war, do we understand adversaries, where they are, locations, so we can try and perhaps get upstream of a conflict in the first instance. And it kind of relates to like a kill chain, you know, and Nick alluded to this. If you don't want a soldier to be injured, well, the solution is don't send them to the theater of war in the first instance and they won't get hurt. But if you have to send your soldier, you know, make sure that they can't be seen. And if they can be seen, make sure they can't be targeted. And if they can be targeted, make sure they can't be hit. And if they can be hit, make sure that they survive. You know, and this sort of chain, it reminds me of where we're facing now with artificial intelligence. It's like we could perhaps pull these things back using artificial intelligence or technologies to help, and I use the term loosely, like sustainable aspects of wars, what we find ourselves facing. Uh, and I think that supports perhaps like the, the civilian aspect of this. You know, it's, it's whenever there's a war, there's always other casualties that aren't the soldiers uh, fighting, unfortunately, as well. But I think the bit that becomes even more powerful is that Buddha loop, you know, the observe, orientate, decide, and act. Using things that support human machine teaming, which, you know, the Ministry of Defense has a, has a joint note on, for example, about almost like enhancing people or, or soldiers up the sort of artificial intelligence food chain allows us to do the things that we're good at as humans, you know, making informed decisions based on the information that's presented rather than trying to scrabble around or try and fight for that information. I think that's where technology can help us. It could present us with the information at a relevant time so we can make, you know, informed decisions, which means we'll have a faster OODA loop cycle and therefore likely to have, you know, a higher target success rate and also therefore like quicker reaction times either in the conflict or as I said earlier with the sort of the build up and understanding warfare in phase zero, you know, that reaction time to that crisis, if you can use technology to perhaps have early indicators and warnings that a conflict is starting to flare up, you might be able to sort of, you know, nip it in the bud and therefore save issues, casualties, costs, etc. downstream once that uh, war goes what I'd call loud. Yeah, that, that's uh, an interesting perspective. And I think, you know, the, the use of AI in defence, that's where it does have a, a significant impact. And it's the same, I suppose, in the enterprise. It's about surfacing that data and making sense of, of what's there and presenting it to you quickly so that, as you say, humans can do what humans are good at. So that makes perfect sense. And uh, I've read tons of, of stuff about cases where AI has um, saved civilian lives and things like car bombs, where um, certain trends have been spotted and it kind of red flagged it. And it's like, well, yeah, there's some traffic patterns, for example. I remember specifically looking at one, and I think it was in uh, in Afghanistan, where um, that they were looking at the traffic patterns and they realised, and then the AI picked up on the fact that two hours before a car bomb the traffic subsided in the area and they realized that this uh, subsidence in the traffic was because the locals were putting it out saying look there's going to be a car bomb keep your family indoors because uh, we don't want any of our of our own sort of becoming collateral damage as such and uh, it turned out that that was the case and they actually managed to actually use that to their advantage and not only deal with the uh, car bomb before it went off, but um, they also realised that when they were taking people to court, that there was the same 
there was probably going to be a, an attack and they could actually time it right to get people to court and back safely w- without any sort of impact. And I thought that was a great use of artificial intelligence of, of just looking at traffic patterns to completely solve something else that, that is, um, is not necessarily related, but is, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I definitely came across a, if not the same system, a very similar system that was very good at detecting abnormal behavior. So we'd plot things and I think it links into like automization of tasks. So this is something perhaps, you know, maybe um, 10, 15 years ago that you would have had an intelligence analyst sat there with a piece of paper, working out what happens on a Monday morning, Tuesday morning, so on and so forth, and, and using sort of their own experience and training to deduce logical outcomes. But I think the real power here that you're mentioning or alluding towards is that, you know, the automization that comes in from simple tasks that we used to do as an individual can just be speeded up or automated and compress that data. Like when you think of Afghanistan, we're there for just what, just under two decades. That's a lot of information. And when people are deployed to those regions, like Nick and I, you only really do sort of six-ish months at a time. And there's always a period of one, when you arrive of like making sense of the information before you become perhaps really operational, you probably then have a good sort of four months of being effective. And then you kind of have a month there where you hand over where the continuity that is provided by having things like automation or artificial intelligence means perhaps we can have a more considered approach and consistent approach in that warfare. And like you said there, actually over time start to save lives because we start to get ahead of the bang moment. Uh, and, and that's what I was sort of alluding to in the first instance. The more we understand in a passive space, the better we are at predicting things perhaps that might or might not occur with degrees of predictability, but we may then be able to stop things occurring in the first instance that have second and third order effects like, you know, soldiers aren't targeted, therefore there's no civilian, civilian casualties. And then there's no infrastructure damage to the local community, which means people can carry on you know, shopping as they would do and having a thriving community. Yeah, that, and that, that's great use of technology. And, uh, you know, if we can uh, all preserve those uh, key elements of, of life effectively, then, then that's a definite benefit. And I, I suppose um, moving slightly off AI for, for a moment, I suppose uh, other technologies that, um, you know, I'm fascinated by and are starting to see more and more, and I, I know we did touch on this um, when you came in to see us um, a few weeks ago, VR and XR, imagine this having a huge impact on the battlefield simulation and, and preparation for battles and uh, that setup. Have you seen any examples of that at all that you can talk about, obviously? That's always the caveat. Yeah. Um, I think it's first noting as well, simulation isn't new to the military. You know, we do things like rehearsal of concepts and we practice constantly because unless you're at war or a conflict, you're always in a stage of preparation. And I've seen the varying types over the years, you know, using computers to assist in targeting helicopters, et cetera, and, and bringing those to life on the battlefield, as well as doing things like um, board games or mapping situations out. But yeah, to answer the real cookie question, I've seen some pretty interesting things recently to do with rehearsal of missions before you actually arrive in the area. So they've used things like drone imagery, et cetera, or open source information to collate a, uh, this particular one I saw was like a target compound or infrastructure that they were going to, um, you know, strike team was going to go and hit. And whilst on the boat or ship <laughs> in preparation for the mission, they had a VR headset set up on them and they effectively built out the, uh, the compound they were going to strike in the hangar of the aircraft. 
and they used VR to go through room by room and practice those drills. So then they kind of had that, you know, that muscle memory or, or, or motor functions embedded. By the time they got onto the target, they would then have that muscle memory in place in order to have a more successful outcome of that mission. But Nick, I don't know if you've um, seen some other bits as well. Yeah, I know that we have um, the UK's new battle lab in Dorset and, you know, large simulation companies, I mean, Improbable springs to mind, but uh, that there are certainly others that are designed to help organizations work together and to, to rehearse. And I, like Jeff, good old infantry mindset is your know, rehearsals, you know, and, and, and drilling is absolutely essential. And, you know, the simulation, uh, VR and, and XR is, is, uh, is a huge part of that. I mean, I, I, th- I don't think it's a substitute for physical training. Um, I mean, I don't think anyone's pretending that it is, but you know, physical training with live ammunition is still something that the British Army does very, very well and takes, uh, rightly, a huge amount of pride in. But I think that my two cents on the use of uh, VR and XR in is, uh, you know, I, I, again, that the technology is never going to replace human beings. You know, that the use of uh, information-based technologies like, like Primer or VR or XR is never going to be a substitute for, for interaction with the physical world or uh, a human being. But human beings using that technology will inevitably replace, you know, the human beings that are not. So whilst the technology is never going to replace people, you know, people who are using that technology will have, have an edge. And, you know, VR and XR is a just a really, really interesting and exciting development. I, there was that, there was a Dan Carlin um, war experience, wasn't there, Jeff? I mean, I think he was talking about it on a podcast where they were trying to recreate, you know, the sort of trench experience and, you know, started giving people, uh, you know, very uncomfortable flashbacks. So yeah, I, I think it's becoming scarily realistic now, um, but I don't think, you know, it can ever be a substitute and nor, nor should it be used as a substitute. Um, it's part of our, of our larger way of, um, you know, working together and, re- and rehearsing. There's definitely a thought I had on that. Um, just expanding on Nick's point is there's also like another, so what moment, like, you know, and, and Nick's right to say, we're, we're never going to replace, there's never been that substitute for the real life training. Cause it, it's, you know, Nick and I have been through that. It's a whole different world. But perhaps there's also this aspect of simulated training in the future, but not just the physical component, but also simulating using artificial intelligence technologies, either because it's a risk to mission because we don't want it to be compromised, typically around things like offensive cyber capabilities, or whether that's just new and emerging technologies that are very costly and we want to prototype something in the first instance to make sure it works. Could also be another way to have a a good play on um, simulating interaction with new technologies. Absolutely, and uh, I suppose, um, from, from my understanding, if uh, you know the VR world and the real world, and uh, that sort of trench experience, um, the smells and the weather, and all those different elements that come into play in in any sort of experience, and you know the smell of the cordite um, in the air, and all those things, I think we're a long way off trying to replicate that. And I think they're the things that you can't prepare people for in that sort of um, in that virtual world yet yeah, absolutely so yeah i think there's still more to come but i do think you know those um the case where you used of uh, the muscle memory practicing those drills i think that that's a great case for it I, I think we'll probably see more of that in all sectors moving forward that practice and we've spoken to a lot of people in the, the education sector in in the medical sector and a lot of the good purposes that we can use this technology for are preparing people as best as we can, but it doesn't put you into that sort of uh, real life uh, pressure situation because at the end of the day, you do kind of know it's not real. Absolutely. 
I suppose bringing in subjects of data science, your expertise, and I'm kind of kind of interested how you know data science coupled with AI, what role that can play in today's military and intelligence in particular, um, because data science is a very different beast than AI, unless you tell me otherwise. I, I think the the efficacy in war piece, you know, like measurement of effect, as we used to call it in the in the information space. You know, we, we've been talking about metrics in war for a long time. Vietnam metrics, you know, that, that famously counting success by a body count was a catastrophic, you know, measurement of, of success. So I, I think the idea of data science is only as good as the data that you're choosing to collect. And the figuring out what are the metrics of success is, is a huge part of that. And so that the ability to process data will only ever be as good as the, the sort of data that you think is relevant um, for what you're ultimately trying to achieve. Uh, what, what, if, what do you make of this, Jeff? Yeah, no, I think so. I think Nick and I have both been in that situation where you need this, right? This artificial intelligence, and, and we'll come into the data science aspect in a moment. Pursuing this is, is non-negotiable. Like y- you have to have this now, you know, the cats out of the box type moments for us, because, you know, we as humans literally just don't have the capacity with the, you know, the amount of data that's available today, and I know there's subsets that will be interested in for intelligence, for example, but, but the pace at what that's being produced in the scale is just a level where we're never going to be able to process that as an individual and, and take that Afghan, um, you know, scenario a minute ago, who's going to look at 20 years worth of, I don't know, IED plotting information and make sense of it in a timely manner. We're going to need the computers to assist us to, to sift through this and make sense of it. And I think that's what we're really facing today. And, and you know, I was doing some reading uh, a few weeks ago around the amounts of data that we have available today. Uh, you know, I think it was something like in 2018, there's 33 zettabytes worth of data. And that global sphere of all data is going to be roughly about 175 zettabytes by 2025. Like we're just not going to be able to do that as individuals. So therefore, we're going to have to use these um, uh, data science and artificial intelligence principles to actually assist us. And I think what they do bring are things like natural language processing or predictive analysis or, you know, in other terms, like data-based classification models or rule engines, you know, deep neural networks and, and making sense of all this. And Nick does a great thing about, you know, bringing the, the needle in the haystack to life, but you kind of need to know what the needle is in the first instance, we've got to sift through that. And uh, I really do believe that, you know, the winner of like an AI race, I think we're in an AI race. I really do believe that, you know, the space race still exists, but we're also concurrently running an AI race. And it won't be perhaps the people who are the first ones to develop it because everyone's doing that and everyone's got their doors open to commercial technologies or even who has the best technology. I generally believe the field here of what it plays and what data science and AI brings is the person who wins that race will be the ones who figure out how to make best use of it. And I think that's probably going to be the big challenge that we face today in the intelligence communities, because we can do a lot. Uh, and Nick touches upon things like ethics and laws, et cetera, but it's, it's how we best utilize that who's going to win. Because I think it's a pretty even field, perhaps, um, you know, even go back to your first question about Israel and, uh, and the UK today. You know, I really do think it's about who who best uses it in the near future is probably going to win that AI race. Great, that's a yeah, great, great response there. Uh, thanks for that. Um, and I suppose following on from uh, the, the point that you touched on there, um, which is a huge topic, and we could probably spend all afternoon debating. It. I know it's a uh, Nick is particularly passionate around, which is the um, the ethics of you know or AI and uh, data science, something that we uh, we discuss internally here at ASM on a regular basis. 
is there an ethical line that shouldn't be crossed when it comes to utilizing AI and machine learning and in other technologies in warfare? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, look, as you, as you say, there's there's a lot to say, um, and I, I I promise I won't drag us down a massive rabbit hole. Um, but I, I think there is like a, the single point that I would make is um, why is it okay to do things in war that it's not otherwise okay to do? You know, you you wouldn't shoot someone, you know, just walking down the street, um, or, or at least that would be, you know, a, a, a illegal and, and very immoral thing to do. And so, how do we justify exercising violence or aggression in war? Um, and it's this, you know, it's a very, very strange moral category that war fits into. Ultimately, we fight for peace. And that's a very, very strange thing to do. You know, we, we, drinking for temperance, you know, do this thing more, exercise violence, because doing it more means that it will happen less. So fighting for peace is a very, very strange form of kind of bizarre moral gymnastics. And so like traditional war, um, what we would call the just war theory, which is, you know, one um, c- collection of historical theories around justifying behavior in war, is arranged around this very, very strange thing that belongs all and only to, to the category of war, you know, fighting for peace, a very, very strange um, thing to do. But basically, there is an element here which we can apply to the use of technology, AI, and cyber, which is, you know, we can fight for peace. And basically, the rule is, or the line that shouldn't be crossed, is, well, war is bad, and so we should try and get out of situations of war, and we should try and fight our way out of situations of war. Now, that might sound a little bit like digging yourself out of a hole, but basically, the rule that you should follow is don't do anything in war that would jeopardize the possibility of a, of a lasting, meaningful peace after that. So even when you're doing things that you shouldn't be doing, um, there are still rules. And that's an intuitive idea, you know, even if you drive your car without a license, you can still break the speed limit. So even if you are doing things that are, you know, otherwise not okay, exercising in violence, don't cross the line that you do things that are going to extend that period of, of, of violence. And so we can apply this to AI and machine learning. So don't launch information campaigns that manipulate the truth and undermine trust between parties that make peace more difficult after the war. Don't uh, do anything using technology that brings in people into the war that wouldn't otherwise be involved in, in war. So don't use technology to extend the boundaries of war, both you know in, in space or time. I think that's the kind of, if, if you can sum it up in one uh, kind of moral line, Ian, that's the line, is that fundamentally technology, don't do anything or don't use technology for anything that would extend the limits uh, of war or that would limit the possibility of peace. I mean, I think that the other point that I would make, and I, I, I think Jeff's probably got a very interesting perspective here based on his experience in cyber, is that there's this huge change going on in the philosophy uh, in the technology of language, where after thousands and thousands of years of like the philosophy of language and the philosophy of mind, and now what's going on is that like that's being manifested in the technology. And so we have people like Emily Bender publishing articles last year about philosophical thought experiments that are now becoming a practical reality, that basically we have machines that can pass the Turing test. But they can't think, you know, they can't exercise judgment, but they can make a very, very good show of it. And I think that comes to the sort of last point is that finally, after thousands and thousands of years of philosophy of language, we are now starting to kind of manifest philosophy of language in tech. We shouldn't be asking machines to do too much. You know, machines and AI can scale processes and scale things that we teach them how to do, but they don't have agency. You know, they can't exercise judgment. So it it can't take responsibility. The kind of additional, more general, I guess, rule is that, you know, AI shouldn't be asked to do too much. You know, there should always be a human being making 
decisions and, and taking responsibility and, and the moral buck can't stop with, with AI or, or stop with the machine. Um, there has to be a person there who uses AI uh, so that they can make better decisions. We shouldn't outsource those decisions completely to, to AI. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts here, Jeff? Yeah, so really fascinating stuff there, Nick. Um, I'm going to come at it from, a, I think, more of like a legal policy side, if I may, because I think all that thinking is, is done at a very high level for us and, and is implemented and it kind of manifests itself as the laws you you touched upon some today. Um, so moving if like, um, you know, not even going to bridge the non-lethal lethal capabilities, I suppose, but just from like, even just like a data collection point of view, you know, we have laws in place and I clearly support that we should never break those laws. Um, but as, as Nick alluded to, you know, you, no one would walk down the street and shoot someone, you know, it's, it's not allowed, but it is allowed if you're a police officer and there's an imminent threat. So there's, you know, there's always the the caveats to the law, which are still lawful acts, but they allow us to break laws. So things, for example, you know, the European Convention of Human Rights, Article 8, um, you know, everyone has a right to their um, private and family life and their respect to that and for their correspondence as well. You know, in times when there are people who are threatening our national security, the state with its powers will have the ability to breach things like ECAHR, Article 8, in order to collect information. So, so there's a really interesting dynamic because we have laws which apply to the population. So we're all in accordance with it. And then there's ties where things have to caps be broken in order to protect the wider populations when it comes to it as well. So I, I think it's really interesting, but here's my point. There's a law that should not be broken and there's policies. Policies are implemented, particularly in defense in order to ensure that we do not breach the law because we don't want to do that. And the policies allow us then to navigate internally to make sure that we've got, you know, balance and checks in place for compliance. But my problem I experienced was that we are over safe in so many aspects, particularly in technologies because it's new and emerging. We're very comfortable when, as you said, Ian, boots on the ground with a rifle, much easier to make a decision. But our policies today for technology are so far removed from the law that they're over safe. And I think it inhibits our ability to operate in the cyber domain effectively. You know, you compare, uh, we talked about Ukraine earlier, Russia, absolute ability to have freedom of movement in the cyber domain without any consequence. And they do not hold themselves to our moral high ground and nor should we go down to them. But, you know, we've got to be realistic to perhaps the challenges we face in this by having, you know, the laws and, and legalities in place and the frictions in war that that will create us, particularly in that cyber domain. Yeah, that's a fascinating overview. And I suppose uh, one of the things that we're coming across is that the the rules and the laws out there do not evolve fast enough for emerging technologies, which is uh, blatantly obvious and, and, and quite often hampers progress as well not just on the battlefield, but in the likes of medicine and uh, and different spaces, unless everybody gets behind it and, and, and focuses on it. Um, just, I suppose, uh, starting to wrap up and, and, and wind down a little bit, my last sort of big question for you is, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I've seen is that the size of the AI market for military use is expected to reach around $19 billion by 2025. And that's just purely the AI sector, which is a huge number for that. What tips would you give to anyone looking to explore AI solutions with their customers? I suppose give us a call, um, Kian. Uh, I guess like um, there's this standoff that's, uh, that we often face, you know, that Jeff and I uh, have come across, which is, you know, the the what do you have, what do you want? Um, language AI, natural language processing is, is very new. 
and you know it's it's also fundamentally very very disruptive technology and so i suppose the tip would be to try and be more accepting of benign use cases in data sets uh, as a stepping stone towards something that really really um you know is significant later on and i think in in the defense and government world there's a lot of process uh you know as, as well there should be if it's if it's public money of course but uh you know we we feel a lot of pressure to get everything right 100% of the time and that is you know completely understandable but like over time that makes the processes quite slow and i i would suggest that you know where we've had success in the past we've used ai uh you know language ai in, in this case for relatively like benign use cases and data sets you know for things that are maybe not that sensitive just to prove the concept we can do that relatively quickly if we can see the data and, you know, we're, we're relatively comfortable um, working together. Uh, it, it's going straight from zero, you know, to naught to 60 to, to working in difficult environments with really challenging data. Getting that right, you know, by the time you've gone through the process of, of uh, you know, the, the permissions and, um, and getting that into a, a place where it's, it's viable, you know, the technology is nearly always out of date. And so being able to move quickly and use technology in, in kind of benign uh, use cases, I think, is a really, really positive step that we've that we've seen. Uh, what do you think, Jeff? Yeah, some fascinating. I think um, for me, I would suggest going back to what I mentioned earlier: the diffusion of innovation. If you've got that bell curve, uh, and on the left hand side of that bell curve, if you can imagine it, you've got the early adopters and the innovators, and on the right hand side, the late adopters. And there's that um, little moment where everyone else will join the journey. I think when you're in a field like we are in natural language processing, it really is an emerging capability. You know, it's really taken off since sort of 2018, 2019, so right in those early stages. Just remember that not everyone is ready for that journey, perhaps, and that it's going to take time. And things like this, where we do thought leadership, or we're talking about, you know, the art, the possible, it's about working where those people are who are going to be you know, supporters or amplifiers of that technology, and perhaps spending more time with them and focusing in, because those are the ones you're going to have more success with. And I say that because, you know, when we deal with things like governments or, or, or militaries, they have very long procurement cycles and, and people tend to change jobs quite regularly as well. So it's important to be in front of the right person, sometimes at the right time in order to have that longevity. And it will take a long time to perhaps develop the things like, you know, like Nick was touching on there. It can take 12 or 18 months to have success with certain clients. Uh, and I suppose my last point in that would be perhaps some things we're learning more recently is sometimes you don't need to have the 100% solution. Uh, particularly with early adoption, you just need to have that proof of concept that shows perhaps 30, 40% viability that gets enough generation for the next turn of the handle, for the next iteration, you know, for the next development of the capability. Great. That's great advice. And uh, yeah, patience is definitely a virtue with uh, dealing with the uh, large complex organizations that you're sharing. A couple of quick fire questions from you and, uh, you know, just as, as a bit of a wind down. First one, I'll put this to uh, to Nick, actually. Do you play Call of Duty on the Xbox or PlayStation? I have been known to uh, to log in for uh, for a couple of games here and there. In yeah, uh, <laughs> younger days. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely having spent a couple of months at Brecon, um, it, it does take the glamour off in a little bit. Um, but no, I, I think yeah, definitely younger uh, playing playing soldiers. Not so much since I left the army, actually. Um, but yeah, maybe um, 
maybe a little bit more since uh, since then. Yeah, I can imagine uh, that being on the side of a Brecon Beacons on a, on a cold January day is very different to sitting in your living room on cold. A, li- a little bit, yeah. Uh, and I think it's quite it's actually quite nice to to be able to um, do that sitting in a living room. But yeah, definitely, I, I think um, the training and just the amount of time uh, getting rained on and, and being outside uh, does sort of take the glamour away from uh, from the, the games. I do think, though, you know, a valid point, and I suppose I can see, you know, obviously there's a lot of ex-pilots at the moment that are drone pilots and have got experience of that, but there is probably going to be a time when people who've worked in that sort of virtual world can fly drones and have a role to play in the battlefield. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there will be. And, and I think the discussion around autonomous weapon systems and, and drones is a, is a fascinating one. And, um, you know, no doubt people who have skill in, in gaming are going to be able to turn that to, to, you know, to, to real life situations. So, yeah, I mean, I think for, for, I guess, my and Jeff generation and the era of the military that we're in, it maybe wasn't quite as applicable. But yeah, it's, I guess it's, it's really interesting to see how the skills used in gaming, you know, piloting vehicles on, on simulations are becoming incredibly transferable. Okay. No, no, great. Thanks. And um, my, my last question for you today, we'll, we'll go with Jeff on this one. In fact, I know to, to both of you, so what, what what's your favourite tech gadget? Yeah, I'll start with that then. So I think I'm going to go a high level. I'm going to, my, my favourite tech gadget is actually pretty much anything Apple based, but specifically the sort of home assistant stuff I've, I've been involved in recently with, uh, you know, Siri, no, no plug here at all, but I'm really, really a big fan of that human machine team aspect of making my life easier. You know, there's lots of things you can automate in your home, whether that's going to be like, you know, basic things like alarms or having lights come on and off at certain times, whether that's going to be, you know, digitizing your shopping list, which is a very helpful habit I find at the minute and just having, yeah, there's that connectivity. I, I find it really interesting as Nick said, you know, spending a, a decade living in the field, being pretty wet and miserable. It's nice to have some luxuries around that make your life a bit easier, perhaps. So I'm a massive fan of that. And I, I think for me, security is always important. And, you know, if you're online and you're doing stuff, you're never going to be 100% secure. But I feel like, you know, for me, Apple's a good level of security, hence why I sort of focus on them. But yeah, if, you, if you've not been involved in that smart home yet, I'd definitely recommend it. It makes your life a little bit easier. And it's quite fun to, if you're into coding and stuff, you can really get into like custom automization pieces and make some pretty cool things. I did one recently where you can, uh, you know, you ask Siri, you know, find me all the local pizza places and it does a little bit of code in the background and it presents you the top 10 pizza places based on rating and, and location. Oh, very good. And uh, Nick? I think it, I, I, I like these videos coming out recently about the DJI Mavic mini drone, uh, I think with the, the Oculus, so like the VR headset you can pair now to the camera on a small drone and then fly the drone and then look down or, you know, either fly the drone and, and be kind of flying around as if you, you know, looking through the Oculus, seeing the camera on the drone, which I think would be awesome. And then you will see, you can then turn it back on yourself and have this bizarre out of body experience where you're looking back on yourself with the oculus where you're watching the camera from the drone that's showing you <laughs> the, the footage of you down below um on the on the ground i just thought that, that'd be a really cool experience um and i yeah i just think it's um it's uh it's a really really interesting use of technology to you know to have experiences and to to see and do things that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise 
Yeah, what amazes me with that kind of technology is, and uh, I've got kids of a generation that are into Snapchat, and I I saw something recently where Snapchat bought out a drone that can sit in the palm of your hand and follow you around with different modes and and all this. I I saw saw the technology and thought, that's quite cool, actually. And I was thinking, I can see what they're doing there to keep ahead of Instagram and uh, and all that. I, I could actually see why they were doing it. And I guess they must be doing it as a lost leader because the price point was something like $299. And I was just like, wow, you know, how much cheaper is you know this really cool technology coming to be? And uh, yeah, it's fascinating, but uh, it's some, some great stuff out there, particularly if you're into your gadgets and technology like uh, I certainly am anyway. Conscious of time. So um, thank you very much for your time today, guys. Really great to speak to you again. Absolutely enjoyed that content. Really exciting stuff going on out there. Hopefully all for the right reasons as well, which is uh, one of the things that we want to see is peace and also uh, and make sure uh, less people come into harm's way. So uh, absolutely fantastic. Thank you both very much for your time. And um, we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, Ian. Cheers, guys. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to ASM Connected, the podcast from ASM Technologies with special guests Nick Melgard and Jeff Nichols, MBE. To find out more about the team at ASM Technologies or about anything discussed in the podcast, visit asmtech.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to make sure you never miss an update. And check out the other episodes in the series featuring key speakers, futurists and business leaders from across the globe. Just search on your podcast app for ASM Connected.